Support for this podcast is provided by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is committed to preserving and expanding educational opportunity for today's students, now more than ever. Welcome to The Key with IHE, a podcast on how the pandemic and the financial crisis are affecting colleges and students. I'm Paul Fain, a news editor at Inside Higher Ed and the host for this podcast. Southern New Hampshire University has one of the nation's largest enrollments. Roughly 130,000 students attend the private nonprofit university's online programs, with another 3,000 or so enrolled at its campus in Manchester. SNHU's online numbers are up so far during the crisis as well. But the university made news in April with an announcement about its campus programs, specifically the tuition price for the campus offerings this fall and next year. The university also will offer more choice to campus-based students, particularly how they take their courses. To better understand what this means for the university and for higher education more broadly, I spoke with Paul LeBlanc, SNHU's longtime president, who also leads the board of the American Council on Education. If you've been thinking about shorter term credentials, just-in-time learning, uh, very skills-based, very aligned to where the jobs are, this is the day that you start that work. I also interviewed Carla Hickman, Vice President of Research at EAB. Carla responded to the news from SNU and discussed its meaning for the rest of higher ed. Now on to the conversation. Thanks so much for making time for me. Good to see you. Hey, it's great to see you too, Paul. So there's a lot of news these days, and yet, uh, and not for the first time, uh, so the New Hampshire broke through the noise with a big announcement. Could you mind talking a little bit about the, the basics of, of what you announced? Yeah, so we announced last Wednesday that starting in September of 2021, uh, tuition for our on-campus programs will be $10,000 a year. And so we took it down from 31,000 down to 10, room and board a separate course. We're gonna to try to work on some things with room and board, but just much harder, food costs are food costs and beds are beds. But, but we could work on, on the academic program on the tuition. There's sort of a second piece to that, um, which is that for our incoming students, they were planning on a certain kind of program um, and we're not gonna be offering that program. We know that we're gonna be doing something different, right? We have to structurally rethink the whole. And so what we said to them is look at, if you are willing to take a bet that we get it right and that for your sophomore, junior year, we'll have a $10,000 year program that you will like, come to us, we'll only charge you 10,000 this year. So we'll start you off a year early and we will give you 100% innovation scholarship to cover the cost of your tuition to de-risk the whole thing. So those students in the first year this coming September will get, they'll only take gen ed courses because they're the most transferable. So if they don't like what they see, they want to go someplace else, it's most transferable. There won't be any uh, out-of-pocket cost for them for tuition. So interestingly, that got a lot of attention um, and it got an enormous response. And we announced this to, stu- to prospective students at nine o'clock. By 11 o'clock, we had more deposits than the previous week. By the end of the day, we broke the one day record for deposits and the next day we broke that record. The phone just exploded. But the big story, of course, is how do you get to a $10,000 year tuition? And that's, that was the big news starting in 2021. Well, let's talk for a second about this class coming in. Obviously that's uh, of great concern to many of your peers around the nation, but for you all, not what drove this. Yeah, so I've, I've shared the story with folks. Um, I've been a college or university president for 24 years. The hardest year I had was 2009 at the height of the last recession. During that time, there were daily multiple calls, emails, pleas for more financial help. Mom and dad lost their jobs, the family business is in trouble. It took lots of forms and we lost a lot of kids. 
And I remember thinking that that was going to be the worst year of my presidency. And it looks and feels like a dress rehearsal for what's about to hit us. At the height of that recession, there were 8 million unemployed people, and that was bad. We're at 24, 25, 26 million and counting. And honestly, in those phone calls, people were saying, were crying and saying, I was prepared to have the conversation saying, I'm not sure college is we can do college this year. I mean, it was, it was so emotional for our admissions people. Interestingly, I think everyone thinks we are responding to the current recession. We begun this work last October. And at the time, the target we set for ourselves was 2023. So the only thing that's different in our ambition and in our plan was we looked up and said, you know, with what's going on in the world, our high school seniors and juniors can't wait three years. They don't have three years. We got to figure this out now. So we made our life a whole lot harder. We thought three years, right? To do this by 2023 was going to be tough. Now we're going to try to do this in a matter of nine months, six months, seven months. And we don't have the answer yet, Paul. So like we know how to take care of the incoming class. Like that's going to be a hybrid of online classes and face-to-face supports, assuming we can open the campus. But for September of 21, that's the work with our faculty and staff to say, what does that need to look like? The last point I'll stop is that it's not simply about the academic program because everyone's focused on what are you going to do differently with faculty and courses and curriculum. We have to look at the whole. So we're looking at how do we leverage our infrastructure around administrative processes? How do we cut cost in administrative processes? Um, We serve 130,000 students online and handle their financial aid perfectly fine. Why do we need an office on campus that is sometimes very, very busy, but sometimes not so busy? Like, can we leverage what we do? Can we rethink the academic year? Can we rethink the semester? So you start to play with your calendar and your structures. Could we go around the calendar year 12 months a year? Could we move to more CBE? Could somebody graduate in two years and recoup the opportunity cost of not being in the workforce? So I keep saying to people, I know everyone wants to talk about academics, it's the whole shooting match, folks. You've got to look at the whole. This is systematic. I, I really like the headline on the Education Dive interview, that the future of the campus may be online. But, you know, it made me think another assumption, uh, like the assumption that you might be worried about your classes fall. You know, Southern New Hampshire does online well. You know, are you, in essence, giving up on a campus? I don't think that's the case at all here. It seems more to me, like you say, it's, it's a complete redesign of the academic experience and it's giving more choice. Is that right? Yeah. In fact, it's kind of the opposite of giving up on the campus. It'd actually be easier in some ways. People have said like, why do you, why do you bother? It's 3000 students out of 135,000 students, but the board has been unwavering in its commitment to the education of young people coming out of high school And there's a really important piece, this kind of coming of age job to be done, if I can use the language of my old friend, Clay Christensen and Bob Moesta. And the job to be done is different than the academic experience. So this is that whole going off and figuring out who you are and study abroad and playing on a team. Like our big challenge to ourselves is how do we keep both those jobs in mind? And there's really, it's much harder to do that coming of age job online. You know, it's not a problem for our adults because they're 30 years old with kids and a job. They've got all the coming of age they can stand. But for a 17-year-old, it's really important. There, I've been thinking about that a lot. I know we all have about how painful and difficult this period is for teenagers or young people who time is different when you're, when you're 21 in a, a spring of your last year of college versus a 30-year-old. I mean, where months fly by. Or, and how do you do that? How, how, do, you, how do you plan around 
creating that sort of experience? I mean, you, you all have more experience in that than, than anyone, but how do you do, do it? Do you mean if we can't, if we have to stay online, how do we yeah, do that? Yeah, to, yeah. To really so if campus can't open and we have to stay online, we know that it can't be a version of our current online program designed for non-traditional students. That might be the core of it, but we're gonna to have to wrap around that a whole lot of support and structure and as many ways as we can create affinity groups as possible. It's not ideal because what it doesn't give you is it doesn't give you life in the dorm. It doesn't give you figuring out how to live with a roommate. It doesn't give you, you know, screwing up your courage and walking onto the gym floor to see if you can make the team. Like it's all of that really growing up stuff that we associate with intentional residential communities. But I think what we have to do is treat this a little bit like a plane trip across the country with a toddler, which is like, we've got to be a little forgiving. We've got to get people through to the other end of this, knowing that we still have a sophomore, junior, and senior year in which to get and layer in all of the other stuff that's so important. But we have to keep them engaged and hopeful and seeing this first year not as a waste, but as something that's a sort of different step towards the bigger journey that they have. But I think we have to be a little bit forgiving ourselves in this as well. Um, we just lost two students to suicide and it's heartbreaking. And I think you can't, can't overestimate the amount of pain that students are feeling right now. These were students who came to us with record levels of anxiety and depression nationally. And we just layered on a global pandemic and an unprecedented recession, maybe depression. Yeah. Wow. Like, you know, what a, I just saw my heart breaks for these kids. And these were, these were two, two terrible, you know, there's nothing worse for a university, right? Yeah. Nothing worse than losing a student. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's a car accident or mental health issues or challenges. And so we've got to give them hope. Like that's, that's what, that's what you lose, right? People lose hope and then really bad things happen. You have to give them hope. Yeah. Uh, good points. So, you know, I think for a lot of institutions looking at Southern New Hampshire, might wonder what sort of external market shifts that you're anticipating beyond, you know, improving your experience. You know, we're helping to drive this, which obviously were accelerated by the pandemic. I mean, I know you all have been working on a $10,000 degree uh, for a long time. You've obviously done quite a bit on competency-based education, which we've talked about over the years. But can, yeah. can you talk yeah. a little bit about how you, before this all happened, what was driving that urgency? Yeah, one simple fact, students, the families we want to serve were increasingly unable to afford us. So what we saw was, so it plays out in different ways. Our discount rate was climbing on our campus programs. So, right, that means students can't afford you. The amount of borrowing that was required for them to be with us, that was going up. Default rates were inching up. All of those things were at play, and we knew that we had to make a change. We had started this work. We just thought we had more time. I wish we had started it five years ago because the downward pressure on price is huge. And every year that we don't fix this, we are losing too many students, particularly students who are already from a disadvantaged background, which could be class and race and, you know, the witch's brew of all the things that go into marginalized communities. It's, it's really, in some ways, someone said to me, was this a hard decision? I was like, really hard in terms of right now, today, I can't tell you what those programs look like. That's the work of our faculty and staff and a whole big task force we have and our innovation team. That's what they're trying to figure out. I can't tell you how we make the finances work quite yet because we don't know what the program looks like quite yet. So it's hard, 
But if I reframe that and say, is this the right thing to do? It's a really easy decision. I was like, yeah, it's the only decision. Like we have to do this if we're gonna stay true to our mission. All the uncertainty out there and the downward uh, price pressure you mentioned, um, you know, w- one of the things I think a lot of listeners uh, are going to be wanting to hear from you is what, what should I take away from my institution? And, you know, we think a lot about this at Inside Higher Ed, Southern New Hampshire, Western Governors, ASU, I think are in a good place to, to uh, retool and find, find uh, uh, programs that work in the fall, given all the uncertainty, given all the offerings you have, the experience you have online, and frankly, the revenue. Um, and, and just kind of stepping back a bit for folks who don't know, you're the board chair of the American Council on Education. What, what do you want people to take away from what you're doing and what pieces of it do you hope more institutions try in these very difficult times? Yeah, so I've been using this, I've been quoting quite often the first line of Anna Karenina where Leo Tolstoy essentially says, you know, happy families are all happy in the same way, but unhappy families aren't happy in their own way. So for all of us in the sort of, you know, amazing, dizzying variety of institutions in America, which is really such a strength and a joy, really. But what you have is like, not sure how much you can take from an SNHU lesson or an ASU lesson or an SNHU lesson, because we're all so different. What we were able to do is work with the assets we have, and we don't have some considerable assets. We don't have a multi-billion dollar, we don't have a billion dollar endowment. We don't have, we're not an R1. We don't have a huge research function, right? So what I would say is that in some ways, treat this like a really high stakes, tough card game. You're sitting at the table right now and you've been dealt a hand. You can't change the cards. The cards you have are the cards you have. So now like all good card players, you have to get really hard nosed at the cards you want to play. And if I was an R1, I'd be thinking really hard about how do I leverage that research capability? How do I rethink learning? Can I leverage that infrastructure in a way to give a different kind of learning to my students? I don't have that option at SNHU. If I'm a, if I'm a super wealthy institution, I'm thinking, all right, I've got to think a bit differently about my endowment. I know how I used to like to spend it, but now how do I think about that and what does that allow me to do? But none of the schools you named are in the positions they're in because they follow the same structural rules. They all change structures. And I think that's probably going to be the, in some ways, it's the hardest thing, but there's no way that you cut your way to prosperity. In terms of, you know, people say, you know, you know will schools try to do what you do? Like, they shouldn't, because unless they have exactly the same assets and resources, we just happen to be lucky to be in one situation. There are things I wish we had and we don't. So you play your cards. The second thing I would say is that there are a bunch of things we knew were true long before the pandemic. So we knew that higher education was too expensive for too many people. That is not news. We knew that our business models were increasingly broken. That is not news. We knew that online had better and better quality. That's not news. We know that a generation of learners who are digital natives are increasingly comfortable being served in, um, with digital tech solutions. That's not news. Um, We knew that states had underfunded their public institutions for years and years. That's not news. The pandemic, it's like rocket fuel to all of those truths. Um, So you can't wait. Like if you are going to try to sort of navigate these waters, you can't wait. You have to figure out now. All of our governance processes, our slow processes of the past when we had the luxury of time, no one has the luxury of time. Time may be, and the hourglass may empty by September for a lot of institutions. So how do you move quickly? And if there, someone said, you know, what are the things that we need to think about? You've got 24, 26 million Americans unemployed and counting. 
degree programs will probably not be the answer for many of them. If you've been thinking about shorter term credentials, just-in-time learning, uh, very skills-based, very aligned to where the jobs are, this is the day that you start that work. Uh, we will end on that. Thanks so much for sharing your time and your expertise. Uh, always appreciate it, uh, particularly now. And uh, I, I speak for myself, but I think a lot of people listening will be watching the cards that you and your, your university play in coming weeks and months. Thank you, Paul. That's always a pleasure. And good luck to everybody. Stay well. America needs higher ed. America's higher ed system more than ever. Absolutely. Thanks again. Does Inside Higher Ed's wide-ranging coronavirus coverage help you stay informed? Show your support by becoming an insider, our membership program, and enjoy special benefits and offers. Your support helps us continue our journalism and free access to all of our daily news and opinions. To learn more and join, please visit www.insidehighered.com backslash membership. So I'm speaking on a Friday afternoon with Carl Hickman. Thanks so much for doing this. Yes, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Carla, uh, would you mind just talking a little bit about your focus at EAB and, and, and what you're working on these days? Sure. So I'm a vice president in EAB Research, been with the organization over a decade now. And um, really a month ago, everything shifted for us like the rest of the world. We have pivoted you know, all of our staff to the issues related to the coronavirus and COVID-19 and what that means for higher education, as well as our K-12 education partners. Um, so that has meant, you know, over a thousand conversations with university and college leaders and lots of writing and uh, work to pivot what we were doing already on partners' behalf across those 1,500 institutions to help them navigate, not just right now, not just the crisis response, but also the ultimate recovery. And I, I believe part of what you're doing these days, like me, is uh, doing some podcasting. Is that correct? And that's right. So we have also decided that we needed more opportunities to share information quickly with partners. So we have office hours with EAB um, and recorded some interesting information there on what we're hearing, what we're learning, helping to partners get through the crisis. Great. Well, check that out, folks, uh, as I will as well. Um, so we're talking about Southern New Hampshire University. Uh, as, as Carla knows well, uh, a very large, successful institution in American higher education that made some, some big news. Uh, it feels like a few weeks ago, but I, uh, Paul told me the other day, it was just last week, uh, <laughs> they, they made some big uh, announcements about their, their campus-based programs. Any, any reactions to the top-line decisions that they, they put out there? Anything strike you as particularly notable? You know, when I first read the headline, I'll admit, I thought, how clever, right? What a logical extension of this journey that Southern New Hampshire has been on for well over a decade now. Um, did not surprise me that they were one of the first to make an announcement. Uh, I think most people were really talking about the $10,000 degree. I'll admit I chuckled a bit because it's certainly not the first time higher education has talked about a $10,000 bachelor's degree. Even uh, it's not New even. Hampshire. Paul's that's what I was about to say. Col College for America back in 2014, I think it was. So it, that part was actually less interesting to me. Um, what I thought was really interesting was that they were starting to live out what I've heard Paula Blanc talk about before, which is pulling together the online part of SNU with the campus-based experience and really bridging that divide. And if you read when I read how they were framing uh, the Innovation Scholarship and the announcement to admitted students and prospective incoming students, it seemed clear to me that they were speaking to a very particular student who would be willing to take on 
um, experimentation and co-create what a new undergraduate experience could look like. Um, and so for me, that was the part I found really interesting that once again, they've put the student at the center of the strategy and have really thought deeply about who is it that will be attracted to a Southern New Hampshire education. Dr. LeBlanc is uh, a fan of the Clay Christensen view of higher ed, you know, anticipating change, uh, being where the puck is heading. Um, mm -hmm. So and I, I definitely, I know as well that they've been experimenting with a lot of this for a while. But, you know, he, he made a convincing case to me, and I don't want to be glib about this, there is a lot of pain that a lot of colleges are experiencing right now mm -hmm. uh, about the uncertainty about the fall and making sure they have enough of a class to stay open. Paul made a pretty strong case to me that that was not at all what Southern New Hampshire is doing with this experiment. Do you, do you buy that? Southern New Hampshire is in an advantaged position as compared to many of their peers. And so I do buy that for them, they can accelerate this experimentation and they have the freedom and flexibility to experiment in a way that many other uh, universities and colleges we work with simply can't. Um, and I don't know that this would necessarily pull from students who might already have had SNHU on their consideration set. Is this gonna pull someone new um, who's willing to co-create, maybe at the margins, but um, I think for them, it's a, we've always been bold, we've always been able to experiment, now is absolutely the time to be even bolder than before. So uh, I get that, you know, their online programs are wildly successful, 130,000 students, and I believe they're up now um, as well. Small campus, 3,000 students. Um, he insists they're not giving up on that campus. But I wondered, you know, what market shift are they trying to anticipate here? Why not kind of keep doing what works and, uh, and coast on your laurels? I know that doesn't work even when you're the biggest university in the country, but just what would you think, what sort of market shift in particular do you think they're trying to get ahead of with this? Yeah, so I think it has been unhelpful in higher education that we continue to ascribe a certain set of characteristics or priorities to the adult student or the online student, both of which I would take some, um, some pause when someone tells me they serve adults, right, because they're generalizing <laughs> lots of people there. But there is this sense that the adult learner or the student who'd be attracted to their online enterprise is fundamentally different than a student who wants a residential campus experience. And I think what we understand and what I see in this announcement is actually those decisions and criteria, what matters to people, what motivates them to go to college, what type of experience they want, uh, there's a lot more convergence there than I think people realize. Um, and I think this allows us to understand, and certainly the pandemic has put this into stark relief, uh, you know, how much of that is the classroom instruction? How much of that is the community um, and the opportunity to live and learn with people around you? And how much of that is the experiential and co-curricular that we wrap around? Um, and I think this experiment gives us a chance to start to understand better what do all students actually value and which ones are going to be attracted to different models and pathways. Yeah, and if they're able, uh, you know, I, I'm speculating here that there's not going to be too much co-curricular or any type of face-to-face -face activity in uh, Southern New Hampshire's Manchester campus this fall, but I could be wrong about that. But if they are able to, you know, down the road to really offer a suite, you know, of, uh, you know, you can do fully online and still participate in athletics and, and you know, mm -hmm. campus life, that's a pretty novel approach, frankly. We haven't really seen much of that, have we? The only institution that I first thought of um, was Minerva 
um, which I think also the image that I always call to mind with Minerva are the two students shoulder to shoulder in their apartment taking their online class. <laughs> and so it is an online learning experience, but there's still that sense of community and then the opportunity to directly apply that learning in a range of experiences. Now, Minerva, of course, is a, a global model. Maybe this is getting closer to what that might look like domestically within the U.S. Um, and then there are other institutions that I think have also recognized that students need what I'll call multimodal instruction, right? So we already know, you know, third of all students are taking at least one online course. This again is sort of pushing the boundaries of for, for many students, how many would be comfortable being that characteristic student sitting in their dorm taking all their classes online, but then they have their study session or their small group seminar or their project-based learning that's actually the in-person component. The question that I know we've all been wrestling with and reading about of, on the other side of this, whenever that may be, how much permanent change occurs in terms of students' preferences and faculty members for, for online and hybrid offerings. You know, um, Paul, I thought, made, a, a, again, a strong case that this is not necessarily a move that many others around the country should emulate, that this new has some, some assets and, and uh, abilities to do things others don't. But, they, they've even before the pandemic, uh, they've caught some attention with recent moves. They uh, articulation agreement with the two-year colleges in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. What do you see in terms of potential kind of market share that Southern New Hampshire could grab um, online or on campus, or just institutions like them, Western Governors? How much of a kind of tectonic shift we might be watching here, and and beyond that, uh, other lessons that you think folks could learn from what Southern Hampshire is doing. In the pandemic, so we've got a public health and an economic crisis co-presenting. Those institutions who, frankly, a decade ago, made a bold decision to either develop a more robust online portfolio, really identify the adult learner or the online student as a priority, they are going to be able to continue consolidating market share. Think about graduate programs for a moment. I know we've been talking undergrad, but in the graduate online space, you know, one in five students, uh, so about 20% of that market, attend only seven schools. SNHU being one of them, right? Four of those seven are nonprofits. And that will accelerate. And I think especially given the uncertainty, uh, concerns around price, concerned around what the fall will look like, many students will flock to those schools who have the established reputation and the established outcomes that give them more confidence that that will be, uh, that will safeguard their investment and that will give them a good educational experience, as opposed to those institutions who, to be honest, were a bit flat-footed because they had not made that uh, signature priority, even for their general education coursework. Absolutely. Well, I feel like we, we barely scratched the surface, but uh, I've learned a lot here, and uh, I, hope, I hope we can do this again. Absolutely, Paul, and we'll all continue to watch and see how it plays out. Yes, and again, uh, Office Hours, right? That's, that's the podcast? That's right, Office Hours with the AB. Check it out, y'all. Thanks so much, Carla. Happy Friday. Thanks, you too. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Key. That's all we've got for this week. But tune in next week as I interview Lindsay McKenzie, a reporter with Inside Higher Ed, and Mike Garn, Assistant Vice Chancellor for New Learning Models at the University of System of Georgia. We talk about the pivot to online by colleges and universities and what to look for this fall. Catch you then. Support for this podcast is provided by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation which is committed to preserving and expanding educational opportunity for today's students, now more than ever.